Supply and big demand. Cases fall, but variants threaten a new surge in the U.S. as states race to get shots in everyone's arms. The demand far outweighs the supply. So when will there be enough vaccines for everyone? I'll speak to Dr. Anthony Fauci next. And the mess in Texas. Dozens dead after major power outages left millions of Texans cold and in the dark. Many still without water. Who's to blame for the emergency? Two Republicans, Texas Congressman Michael McCall and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, join me to discuss in moments. Plus, left out, President Biden pushes back on some progressive priorities like $50,000 of student debt forgiveness. I will not make that happen. As the left fights to keep their goals in the COVID relief bill. But I believe that we will succeed in including the minimum wage. Will they succeed? I'll speak exclusively to the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is short on supply. This morning, millions of Texans are still without safe water and struggling with the aftermath of a deep freeze that killed dozens and left the state crippled when its power grid failed. To add insult to injury, some Texans are waking up to thousands of dollars in energy bills after unprecedented price surges, which Texas authorities say they are investigating. That winter storm that is sweeping across the country is also impacting the vaccine effort that was already playing a game of catch up. The White House says six million doses were delayed because of the weather. This as the U.S. approaches a somber new pandemic milestone, half a million COVID deaths by the official numbers. That is more than double the next country on that list. There is some good news, however. The map of new infections starting to turn green again. You see it there, and COVID cases are down by 70%. But experts are warning the country is in a race against time as new variants of the virus threaten to supercharge the spread, causing some to question whether the U.S. should begin prioritizing first vaccine doses over second to get more shots in arms. Well, joining me now is the nation's top infectious disease expert and President Biden's chief medical advisor on COVID-19, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, there is good news this week. As I just mentioned, new cases are significantly lower. But uh, former Biden transition advisor Michael o Osterholm said this week that the UK variant is very likely to cause a devastating spike in the next five to 14 weeks. He's also compared it to a category five hurricane. So should Americans be ready for a new surge in cases in the next couple of months, Dr. Fauci? Well, I think you always want to be prepared for that type of thing. I, I don't think at all that it is inevitable that that will happen. The way you mitigate against that, Dana, is you do two things. You continue to abide by the public health measures and recommendations of universal wearing of masks, keeping physical distance, avoiding congregate settings, particularly indoors, washing your hands, the things that we speak about all the time. That's a very good way to prevent any infection, be it a variant or not. The other thing that's important that our viewers should appreciate is that the vaccines that we are currently distributing now, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, work very well against the UK variant, the 117. So the better we do at getting vaccine into people's arms, 
as quickly and as expeditiously as possible, that will be another important tool against preventing this additional spike that we want to make sure does not happen with the UK variant. Well, let's talk a little bit more about vaccines. New research, I know you've seen from Israel and Canada, suggests that even one shot of the Pfizer vaccine can provide 85 to 90 percent protection. And the UK is delaying some of its second doses up to 12 weeks. Can you explain to Americans why the U.S. isn't adjusting its strategy when millions of them who want a vaccine, number one, can't get one? Well, Dan, it's a good question, but the answer is that we want to do things based on the science. First of all, there are two scenarios. The one you're talking about, about the Pfizer giving one dose and having a good degree of protection versus what they're doing in the UK. So let me very briefly explain both. The Pfizer situation where they gave a vaccine and after a period of time at 15 to 28 days, they had good protection. What we don't know, and this is the risky business about it, we don't know how durable that effect is going to be. We know for sure that when you give a prime with the Pfizer, followed by a boost 21 days later, that you get a 94 to 95% efficacy. And the difference between the level of antibodies after one dose versus two doses is about tenfold higher. And that is really important because when you have that high a degree comparable to the single dose alone, that's the cushion that you would like to have when you get a variant that isn't as well protected against by the antibodies induced by the vaccine, but you have enough level to be able to prevent at least severe disease. So the science points directly towards continuing with what we know about from the clinical trial. Now, we always keep an open mind to continue to look at data and make decisions based on the evidence and the data. Very quickly, the situation with the UK, a bit different because they're talking about an entirely different vaccine platform. Mm. They're talking about a vaccine that was developed using a chimp adenovector as opposed to the mRNA. So they really are not comparable when you talk about the duration that you'll wait before you get the second dose when you're talking about Pfizer or Moderna, which is what we're using here in the United States. That's a really important explanation because there are a lot of people confused about it. Let's talk about schools, Dr. Fauci. The administration says that schools should open in person as long as they are following the five steps from the CDC, like social distancing and wearing masks you talk so much about. Given the science, are schools being too cautious, do you think? And are there schools closed right now that should be open in person? You know, I mean, obviously, if it's a very difficult situation to get an absolute definitive answer. What the, what the CDC has tried to do is look at the risks that you have and try, if you follow the CDC guidelines, to get the children back in school, at least with hybrid and maybe even when you actually have a, an increased spacing with them, that you can get it in what's called a decreased capacity. If you do the four or five things that the CDC recommends. The bottom line goal that I think people need to remember is that, and I've said this way before the CDC guidelines came out, that the default position is to do whatever you can, as best as you can, to get the children back to school 
with safety concerns for the children and for the teachers and the educational personnel. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what the president is talking about, about getting those K to 12 schools open uh, within the first 100 days. And that's what we want to do. Yeah. And so for for administrators, administrators, superintendents, teachers listening to you right now, what is your advice to them? Uh, Should 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 they push the boundaries more than they are? Because there's a lot of frustration out there that the CDC guidelines are, as you explained, they're pretty clear but the schools are dragging their feet. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the the situation on the ground with the teachers are gonna make their decisions and the schools are gonna make their decisions. The CDC gives guidelines. If you follow the guidelines, I think it will go a long way to be able to get the children back to school in the safest way as you possibly can. One of the things that comes up is that we'll be doing more and more of And I think these are things that are important to put into the mix of the consideration is that teachers clearly should be prioritized among those essential personnel to -hmm. get vaccinated. I don't believe that it should be a sine qua non that if they're not vaccinated, they should not go back. I believe we should prioritize them and get as many vaccinated as we possibly can. The other thing that is going to relate very, very closely to what you've said just a moment ago, is if you look at the number of infections in the community, they're coming down at a very, very rapid, steep decline, Mm -hmm. which means very quickly, as we get into the next week or so, Dana, you're gonna see more areas getting into the yellow and then the blue zone as that continuation goes down, which I think will add to the solution to the problem together with the CDC guidelines. Well, you mentioned uh, the level at which the the doses are getting out into the community. The U.S. is administering about 1.5 million doses per day. Um, Everybody agrees that the pace needs to be picked up. Is the federal government doing absolutely everything it can? And how many doses per day would you like to be administering by, say, the end of April? You know, obviously you want to do more and more. We're at 1.5, we were up to 1.8 a bit ago. Of course, you'd like to see it over two. You'd like to see that happen. So what are we doing? We've been contracting with the companies to get commitments for more doses, number one. The important thing is when you get the doses, getting them into people's arms. And as the president has said multiple times, A, we're doing community vaccine centers, particularly in those areas where you have demographic groups that are generally underserved. We're putting more vaccines into pharmacies, We're using mobile units to go out into underserved areas to do that. And we're getting what's called vaccinators, people who can actually put the vaccine into people's arms. All of those things are being pushed very, very, I would say, aggressively to make sure we get those vaccines into people's arms as quickly as we possibly can. Real quick, would you like it to be over two million doses a day by the end of April? Is that what you meant? Of course, I I would like it to be that and then some. I mean, obviously, just because you set a goal of what it is, you always want to supersede that goal and get as many as you possibly can. And I believe, Dana, what you're going to start to see as we get more vaccines, you're going to see a lot more vaccines going into people's arms in a much broader way. So there is some confusion about what that actually means for a person's lifestyle. Uh, after they are vaccinated. I'll give you an example. My parents have already gotten their second dose. 
they're fully vaccinated. Does that mean it's okay for them to spend time with their grandchildren who obviously have not been vaccinated? What's your recommendation? You know, I'm not going to make a recommendation now except to say that these are things that we really do. I mean, literally every day, Dano, we look at that. We look at the data. We look at what's evolving about how many people are getting vaccinated. And there will be recommendations coming out. I don't want to be making a recommendation now on public TV. We want to sit down with the team, take a look at that. And you will be seeing relaxation of some of the stringencies as more and more people get vaccinated. Well, let me I just, promise you that, but I don't want to really do it right now. Well, just to uh, make it personal, I mean, you've been very open about the fact that you've been skipping holidays with your family. You're fully vaccinated. Are you seeing right. your family? Uh, right now, not yet. Not yet. I mean, I would look forward to it within a reasonable period of time as the rest of my family gets vaccinated. I mean, obviously, I'm with my wife every day. Right. She has gotten her first dose, will soon get her second dose. But my children, when they get vaccinated, obviously, I look forward to seeing them. And I'm sure that by that time, recommendations will come out to guide us in a more precise way. You and the president have suggested that we'll approach normality toward the end of the year. What does normal mean? Do you think Americans will still be wearing masks, for example, in 2022? You know, I think it is possible that that's the case. And again, it really depends on what you mean by normality. If right. Normality That's what I want you to define exactly it. Exactly <laughs> the way. It, <laughs> no, Dana, it's important because if normality means exactly the way things were before we had this happen to us, I, I mean, I can't predict that. I mean, obviously, I think we're going to have a significant degree of normality beyond what the, the terrible burden that all of us have been through over the last year, that as we get into the fall and the winter by the end of the year, I agree with the president completely that we will be approaching a degree of normality. It may or may not be precisely the way it was in November of 2019, but it'll be much, much better than what we're doing right now. Why do you think Americans might have to wear masks into 2022? You know, because it depends on the low, on the level of 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 of, uh, of dynamics of virus that's in the community, and that's really important, because that gets back to something again that you said. If you see the level coming down really, really, very low, I want it to keep going down to a baseline that's so low that there's virtually no threat, or not no, it'll never be zero, but a minimal, minimal threat that you will be exposed to someone who is infected. So if you combine getting most of the people in the country vaccinated with getting the level of of virus in the community very, very low, then I believe you're going to be able to say, you know, for the most part, we don't necessarily have to wear masks. But if we have a level of virus that is at that level that it was months and months ago, like 20,000 per day is a heck of a lot better than what it's been. But that's still very high level of virus in the Mm. community. I want to see it go way down when it goes way down and the overwhelming majority of the people in the population are vaccinated. Then I would feel comfortable in saying, you know, we need to pull back on the masks. We don't need to have masks. Wow. So so your timeline is taking us out a year, maybe two years, maybe even longer. No, I you know, I can't say that, Dana. And and I don't want to I don't want it to be said that because then it'll be a soundbite. That's not true. (laughs) I'm saying we don't know. We don't know. And, and, you know, the president said it very, very well at the very end of this press conference 
when he was in uh, Michigan at the Pfizer plant, he said, you know, you ask me to make projections. These are just projections that are estimates. And a lot of things can happen to modify that. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why we've got to be careful, because you have variants that you need to deal with. There are so many other things that would make a projection that I give you today mm-hmm. on this Sunday wind up not being the case six months from now. Understood. Understood. I have to, before I let you go, ask about uh, the grim milestone that the U.S. looks like it's going to reach 500,000 deaths from this virus. You've yeah. been in the trenches on this since the beginning. What's your reaction to this milestone coming up? It's, it's, it's terrible, Dana. It's, it's really horrible. It's something that is historic. It's nothing like we've ever been through in the last 102 years since the 1918 influenza pandemic. People decades from now, Dana, are going to be talking about this as a, as a terribly historic milestone, you know, in the history of this country to have these many people to have died from a respiratory borne infection. It really is a terrible situation that we've been through and that we're still going through. And that's the reason why we keep insisting to continue with the public health measures, because we don't want this to get much worse than it already is. That is very true. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Fauci, and thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for having me. And coming up, the dire emergency in Texas where millions still don't have a reliable water supply and how the mess there is only adding to the problems inside the Republican Party. GOP Texas Congressman Michael McCall joins me next. And President Biden is trying to keep his own party together as he faces growing pressure from the left. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. President Biden approved a major disaster declaration for Texas after frigid temperatures crippled the power grid. Millions of residents are still under a boil water advisory and some households are now facing staggering energy bills. And the blame game over what went wrong and what hopelessly is happening to people down there. It started well before the thaw. Joining me now is Republican Congressman of Texas, Michael McCall. Thank you so much for joining me uh, this morning. You were one of the millions of Texans who went days without power or water this week. So what's the situation on the ground right now? Well, the snow is gone now. It's uh, up in the 50s. You know, normally in Texas, winter times are pretty nice. Uh, (laughs) We haven't been hit by an Arctic blast like this since the 1890s. To put it in perspective, it was down uh, below five uh, degrees, close to zero degrees for many days. I had power, uh, I was without power in my home for about five days, no water, electricity. And that was uh, true across the state. Um, It was really unprecedented, a lot of damage. Unfortunately, about 50 people have died now. Um, I'm glad the president, we sent a letter asking for an emergency declaration. I want to thank him for granting that. Uh, we estimate this may be as high as, as the uh, emergency relief during Hurricane Harvey, mm. to put it in perspective. So let's talk about how we got here. Most of Texas has its own separate, heavily deregulated power grid, in part to avoid federal oversight. I want to read something that the former governor of your state and former energy secretary under Donald Trump, Rick Perry, 
said about this. He said, quote, Texans would be without electricity for longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. Is that really an acceptable trade-off? Republicans have pushed deregulation for years, but isn't this crisis exhibit A of why some regulation is needed when it comes to protecting people's health and safety? Well, I think power sharing would have been helpful if we could have shared with other power grids. Texas does have its own uh, grid called ERCOT. Um, it was uh, set up that way to be independent of federal uh, oversight and regulations. And, you know, that, that's very good with things like cybersecurity. Not so good when it comes to an Arctic blast like this one. In 2011, the state legislature, after we had a really bad freeze, came out with a bipartisan report with recommendations to the energy companies and to ERCOT as to how to winterize our operations. The difference between Texas and, say, the Northeast is we're not prepared for this. We're not used to this kind of weather. So when it happened, uh, our entire energy system was not winterized for sub, you know, zero degree temperature uh, as it is in the Northeast. That is what we're going to be taking a look at uh, moving forward are these recommendations that were made in 2011. And how can we move forward to winterize these operations so this never happens again? Well, as you know, I'm sure some Texans are seeing outrageous energy bills because their rates are tied to the energy market. People are having to empty their life savings in order to pay these bills in the thousands uh, and even more. Are you going to be able to fix that? Well, we're hopeful with this emergency uh, disaster declaration. Uh, that only not only provides FEMA, uh, we got that uh, uh, earlier with an emergency declaration, but a disaster declaration brings in the federal assistance uh, from the federal government. And that's what uh, Texans need right now so desperately. A lot of people are hurting right now. Um, you know, people have died. You know, I, I had two nursing homes, assisted living, that were without power, a hospital without power that we were able in an emergency basis to get power to them. Can you imagine? Mm. Uh, the death toll could have been a much higher. Uh, but through talking to my constituents and and my uh, elected officials, we were able to stop things like that from happening. And that's why it's so important for, I think, elected officials to be close to the ground. Yep when you have a time of crisis like this. But I assume you're going to do something to help people pay those bills. Are you saying you'll use the disaster relief funding from the federal government? Yes. Yeah, that, that's the, uh, the current plans with, with the federal assistance, be able to help uh, the homeowners both repair, because we have so, a lot of water leaks, a lot of water damage, yeah. uh, pipes bursting, but also uh, their electricity bills as well. Well, uh, let's talk about the criticism, and there's a lot of it. And some downright anger at Republican leaders in your state, whether it's your governor, Abbott, for his handling of the storm, for Senator Ted Cruz, for his decision to go on a family vacation to Cancun. Meanwhile, you're seeing high-profile Democrats, Beto O'Rourke, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who lives in New York, uh, organizing phone banks, distributing supplies, raising millions of dollars for Texans in need. Just on the raw politics of this, does that split screen worry you? Well, you know, I, I think it's what America's all about. I think it's great that uh, AOC and Beto are crossing party lines. Yeah, but what about the other side of that not, equa equation? The concern well, I think about Republicans. Republicans need to be, I think we need to be helping as well. And we will with the federal emergency uh, declaration that we got from the president. Uh, but I think it's great that they're crossing party lines to help Americans first and not just Republican or Democrats. And, and I think that's 
you know, the way it really should be. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, some are taking heat. You know, look, when a crisis hits my state, I'm there. I'm not going to go on some vacation. I know uh, uh, Mr. Cruz called it a mistake and he's owned up to that. Um, but I, I think that was a big mistake. And, and uh, as for me, I was on the ground trying to help my people out and my constituents. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we should be doing in a time of crisis, just like we did during the hurricane uh, season as well. I have to say real quickly, um, hearing you say that the federal government is going to help to bail out uh, and to pay bills on a state which is in part in this mess because it wants to be separate from the federal government is kind of rich, don't you think? Well, you know, here's the deal is that um, because we were not winterized, I mean, and, and it is a paradox, right? Here you have Texas, the probably the energy capital of the world, right. I would say. Uh, Houston and, and Texas in general, we have more energy in this state than any other state in the United States and arguably more than any in, in the world. And yet here we are without energy. How does that make sense? And we can blame it on wind and solar, but that's about 25% of the grid. Uh, 75% is is uh, natural gas and coal. They were all frozen in their operations. So this winterization idea that I talked about, mm-hmm. It was set forth in the 2011 report is something that I believe we need to uh, strongly move forward and make the investment that they failed to do in the past. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to make that investment now. All right. So, I mean, 2011 was was 10 years ago Um, on that. Experts are saying that what we're seeing in Texas uh, and the state infrastructure system that you were talking about, which is so overwhelmed, is just a preview of what to expect if uh, the United States doesn't confront the climate crisis head on. I know you're you're someone who acknowledges that climate is changing, that humans are playing a role. Does this experience show you that the climate crisis poses a real threat to Texas and the world? Well, I managed the Paris Accord on the floor last year. You know, I think I surprised some of my colleagues across the aisle when I said I'm not saying it's not happening. I think I think it's real. I think the question is how to deal with it. And I think innovation, technology, a Manhattan type uh, project. Uh, to deal with uh, clean energy is a way to go. I think these micro-nuclear devices, which I've had a lot of conversations with my state counterparts uh-huh. about we have one nuclear facility in Texas. Why aren't we bringing in these micro-nuclear devices that can produce a ton of energy with zero carbon emissions? You know, ideas like that that we right. can put forward. Um, tying ourselves to an agreement with China that doesn't have to comply until 2030 that's a developing nation under the United Nations Charter doesn't seem to be a really good idea unless we can change that that paradigm with the Paris Accords. We're, we're almost out of time. I have to ask you one uh, quick question. You are the top Republican on House Foreign Affairs. Uh, President Biden is uh, facing a really tough decision in the coming weeks over whether to stick with the May 1st deadline put in place by President Trump to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And you know the uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joseph Dunford, wants uh, Joe Biden to delay the withdrawal. Uh, from Afghanistan. Do you agree? Uh, I agree with General Dunford uh, on this one. I was in the White House with President Trump arguing to him, you don't want to repeat the same mistake of your predecessor in Iraq, where you pulled out 100% and then ISIS reared its ugly head. I convinced him, I think, to have a residual force in Syria to protect the homeland. I I think Afghanistan is going to be very important. And I hope the Biden administration, I can work with them on this, I've talked to Secretary Blinken and the National Security Advisor. 
about leaving a residual force there to protect the homeland and not allow the Taliban to take over that country is vitally important, not only to their national security interests, but to ours. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for all of your time this morning, Congressman Michael McCall. And a Republican who is sick of the Trump worship says he's leaving the party and he's the nephew of GOP Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is here to talk about that and much, much more next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. A bipartisan group of governors wrote President Biden this week to fix the confusion over the vaccine rollout to states, despite coronavirus cases actually declining nationwide and vaccine distribution improving. States are saying more communication with the federal government, uh, which is a problem going back to the Trump White House, could get even more shots in arms faster. Joining me now is one of the governors who signed that letter to Biden, Republican Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. Governor, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I want to start with that letter to the president. Last month, you called the vaccine distribution process under Biden seamless. Has that changed? No, it's been a seamless handoff. Uh, They've taken the ball. Uh, They've been able, because of increased production, to increase the uh, manufacturing and the allocation to the states on our doses. Uh, What we meant by that letter is the governors want to be held accountable and we want to be responsible for getting these vaccines out, but we're setting up multiple programs right now. We're setting up the state program and then there's some federal programs that are going uh, side by side with that. And uh, we're sending the signal that as you have increased allocation, give it to the states, we'll get it out, we'll get it in the arms of people. We have the same commitment and it's easier to coordinate that way. Uh, But we have a very uh, good working relationship with the White House. Uh, I expect us to work through these issues, and we're going to continue to increase uh, getting those doses out. So the House of Representatives is set to vote on President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package this week. Could you use the help? And do you think Arkansas representatives in Washington should vote yes? Well, first of all, uh, I think the president has missed an opportunity to have bipartisan support for this bill. I don't think it's the right strategy to ram that through on a party line vote. Uh, I think this, the, everybody recognizes the urgent need for a stimulus package uh, for relief to the states. Uh, that's what the governors support. But it's a fair debate as to mm-hmm. uh, what's included in that bill and how much uh, debt we're going to put on our children for the future. And it's a very expensive bill at $1.9 trillion. I read the bill last night, 590 pages that covers everything from the arts uh, to food for peace programs. And it really looks like it just took uh, all the federal programs, enhanced their budget. It needs to be more targeted. And so we need that relief. We need to enact. But uh, my message is that I would have preferred it to be done in a bipartisan way. And I think that it could be trimmed back. And I think that's... uh, important. And when Americans say uh, they want that and they support it, absolutely, because we do need that, whether it's in Texas or in Arkansas, we need it. But it's fair to bring in broader support for that. The debate over the direction of your party, Governor, took a personal angle for you this week. Arkansas State Senator Jim Hendren, who was your nephew, announced that he's leaving because of the GOP's embrace of Donald Trump, and he pointed specifically to the insurrection on January 6th. I want to 
play for our viewers what he said. That day was the final straw. I asked myself, what in the world would I tell my grandchildren when they asked one day what happened and what did I do about it? I'm still a conservative, but I'm one whose values about decency, civility, and compassion I just don't see in my party anymore. I haven't changed. My party has. What's your reaction to that? Your own nephew doesn't see a place for himself in your party anymore. Well, it saddens me, and it's certainly a warning sign to us that uh, there's many out there that would like to see a more civil dialogue. And so I have tremendous respect for his, uh, what he announced or what he's thinking there. But he's been a big part of lowering taxes in Arkansas. He's been a great partner with me. Uh, but he has said, uh, you know, I'm going to start as an independent. And I tell him, and I believe it in my heart, I fought for 40 years for a conservative Republican Party. And sure, we have personalities that come and go, but we stick to our principles. That's a good future. And that's where I am, right with the party, uh, trying to build it for the future on a conservative basis. But also, we're trying to accomplish the same thing in a more civil dialogue, being able to reach across the aisle, to be able to work with each other. And that's what I really think the American public wants versus driving that wedge. So. Uh, it's, uh, you know, saddens me, but at the same time, I respect his decision. Uh, we're going to work for a mutual goal, but in mm -hmm. different ways. I'll be working within the Republican Party. Well, you told my colleague Aaron Burnett that Trump can't define the party moving forward. But the fact is, he does define it right now, to the point that people like your nephew feel they have no choice but to leave. Uh, the former president is speaking at CPAC. He's encouraging primary challenges against uh, fellow Republicans who don't embrace him. So has Trump succeeded in taking down the Republican Party as you know it? Well, he will only define our party if we let him define our party. And that's one of the reasons that uh, my voice is important, uh, others' voice is important in this debate. And, and I think it's fine for uh, uh, CPAC to invite uh, former President Trump uh, to speak, but how about the other voices, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, those that have different points of view, still arch conservatives, but a different voice for the future of our party. And so that's what we've got to embrace. He has a loud megaphone, but we have to have many different voices. And in my view, we can't let him define us for the future because that would just further divide our country uh, and it would, would hurt our Republican Party. The former president is teasing a run again in 2024. Would you ever support him again? No, I wouldn't. Uh, it's time. And, and he's got a good family. I've worked with uh, Ivanka and others, and uh, they, they love America. But uh, I would not support him for re-election in 2024. Uh, he's going to have a voice, but uh, as uh, former presidents do. But there's many voices in the party. And again, uh, he should not define our future. We've got to define it for ourselves, and that has to be based upon the principles that really gave us the strength in America. We've got to respond to the people that like Trump. We've got to respond and identify with the issues that gave him uh, the first election and gave him support throughout his uh, presidency. There's one that we have to reach out to, mm. but it's based upon conservative principles and reaching out to those blue collar voters that are so important that identified with him because he's fighting uh, for them. And we've got to take uh, that message, but we just got to handle it in a different way 
with different personalities. Governor, before I let you go, I want to ask about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who was under fire amid revelations his administration underreported the extent of extent of coronavirus deaths among nursing home residents in New York. Legislators there uh, from both parties are moving to strip him of emergency powers. He's the chair of the National Governance Association. You are the vice chair. Do you believe he should be held accountable for his actions? Well, every governor should be held accountable for their actions. And so as a fellow governor, I'm not going to start criticizing uh, other governors for what's happening in their state. Uh, We are accountable. I do think it's uh, important whenever you're looking at uh, the nursing home deaths that they're properly accounted for, uh, that we're transparent with the uh, American people, even though it might make us look bad in terms of what's happening in our state. Transparency from day one has been critically important in giving people confidence as we go through uh, this terrible Mm -hmm. pandemic. Governor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. And the president's efforts to find common ground with lawmakers is a challenge. And I'm not even talking about Republicans. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. Forget about Republican resistance for a second. President Biden is facing some big-time pushback from his own party. Joining me now is Congresswoman Camilla Jayapal, Democrat from Washington State and chair of the nearly 100-member House Progressive Caucus. Thank you so much for joining me. I I want to start with President Biden's coronavirus relief bill. It's going to go before uh, the House coming uh, this coming week. Uh, The president made clear that a minimum wage increase to $15 might not happen in this bill. Do you think he's fighting hard enough to get this done? Well, the president came out very strong early on saying he wanted a $15 minimum wage in this bill. He has been fairly consistent on that. I know there are questions about whether or not the Senate can get it through. But I can tell you, Dana, this $15 minimum wage increase would mean 30 million Americans would get a raise. A million Americans would come out of poverty And 30 percent of those minimum wage workers are black. Twenty five percent are Latinx. It is absolutely essential that we do it. And I believe the Senate will do it. Um, You said that he was consistent, but he's also said he doesn't actually think it's going to end up in this bill. Well, let's see. I think he's you know, he's he's speaking as he's thinking about whether or not um, it's going to make it through, according to the parliamentarians rule. But I've been speaking with Senator Sanders pretty regularly, with Speaker Pelosi, with the White House. And if uh, Republicans could give a you know, $2 trillion tax break to the wealthiest people and stop Arctic drilling uh, then, or, or continue drilling in the Arctic, then I think that Democrats can make sure that 30 million Americans get a raise. Well, even if the parliamentarian says yes, um, it seems like it's possible you might not have the votes. Uh, You've said that, quote, we can't let one or two Democrats prevent the $15 minimum wage from being in the relief bill. There are currently two Democratic senators who are not on board with it. Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of uh, Arizona. What's your message to them? My message is 30 million Americans deserve a raise. We have not raised the minimum wage in 12 years. 
And, you know, the the place that people are in today where they can't put food on their table, essential workers, many black, brown and indigenous um, are, you know, going to work every day and trying to exist on fifteen thousand dollars a year. You just can't feed a family, much less put anything away for any emergencies. And so if we're going to be real about tackling racial inequity, economic inequity, then we are going to have to raise the minimum wage. And let me just say this. It is good for communities. It's good for businesses. I know because we were the first major city in Seattle to raise the minimum wage to 15 over a period of years. And in 2018 and 2019, Forbes ranked us the best place in the country for businesses and for careers. We had one of the lowest unemployment uh, numbers in the country. And so we know that this is good for everyone. So yes or no, if minimum wage is not included in the final COVID bill, will you still vote for it? I think it's going to be included. So I don't think we're going to have to make that decision. And I think we're going to have to fight hard for it because 30 million people deserve us uh, as Democrats fighting for their future. I want to get to a different issue in the relief bill. President Biden suggested that he's willing to negotiate on who receives a $1,400 direct payment that is in uh, the legislation. Most Democrats are calling for a $75,000 income limit for individuals, but The president has signaled he's willing to lower that. Does that income limit need to stay at $75,000 or would you be okay with it a bit lower? It absolutely has to. Dana, if you raise those uh, income thresholds, you're going to cut out 40 million Americans who got a relief check under Donald Trump who won't get a relief check under Joe Biden. That doesn't make any political sense to me. But from a policy standpoint, if you really wanted to target these checks, you would have recent income numbers. The fact is, most people are going to be going according to 2019 incomes. And we know tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs in 2020. So these income thresholds need to stay the same. Progressives fought for that in the House, and they are the same in the House. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really pleased with that. And I believe that's going to be that's going to be the case uh, in the Senate as well, because we just have people who are suffering food banks with lines going around the block across the country. We need to get money in people's pockets. And this is the quickest way to do that. Another issue uh, real quick is on forgiving student loan debt. President Biden said that flatly no, uh, that to the progressive saying it should be $50,000. He said it should be $10,000. Your reaction? We, we want at least $50,000 canceled. We believe, again, this is $1.7 trillion of student debt. And if you cancel that debt, you give a lifeline to millions of people across this country. So let's work on it together. Obviously, if, if Congress could do it, that's great. But we believe that the president has the authority to do it. And we've been in conversation with the White House about it. And we urge President Biden to use every tool in his toolbox and get relief to people at this critical time. We're almost out of time. Real quick, are you comfortable that uh, President Biden is living up to his promise to be the most progressive president? Well, I think he has been doing a really great job coming out of the gate strong. I think what we need to do is finish strong all the promises that have been made during the campaign to deliver relief to people, to make sure people understand what happens when Democrats control the House, the Senate and the White House is we deliver relief. Now we got to make sure we deliver. 
Okay, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for spending your Sunday with us. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.